Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell. Welcome to the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm excited about today because we finally got to what might be my favorite poet of the mid-fourth century. I don't know how many people have a favorite poet of the mid-fourth century, let alone are familiar with many poets of the late fourth century or the mid-fourth century, but that's why we're doing this podcast. So we're now half a dozen episodes in to our series on early Christian poetry. So the poet we're going to talk about today is Faltonia Batitia Proba. Probably people haven't heard of Juvencus. Some have heard of Lactantius if you've done any study in early Christian theology. But Proba is particularly not very well known, partly because even the sources we have who attest to the biography of Juvencus, who we talked about last time, don't attest to the biography of Proba. But Proba's poem is in fact one of the most contemporarily successful poems of its age. Juvencus was highly regarded, but not to the extent of Proba. Proba's poem, which we're going to talk about today, was beloved by the emperor himself at the end of the 4th century, and he asked for his own fancy copy of it from his scribes. And it began being taught in Christian schools in later centuries in place of Virgil. So instead of reading the Aeneid, Christian schools would use Proba's poem. Now, it must be quite an interesting and successful poem if Virgil was knocked out of the curriculum in favor of Proba. Well, Proba's poem is successful, I would argue. It's one of the most fascinating poems of its age, but it's also very, very peculiar. First, what do we know about Proba? Well, we know from Isidore, who was writing in a later century, so this is not perhaps the most reliable source when it comes to details of her life, but we hear from Isidore, who's a church historian, that Proba was the wife of a proconsul who lived in the mid-4th century in Rome. So she would have been a Roman noblewoman. Now, as was becoming more and more chic at the time, Proba was a Christian. Apparently, Christianity was very popular among Roman noblewomen. Also Roman noblemen, but historians point out that to be a very fashionable Roman noblewoman, Christianity was, was the cool thing to be. Now, we find out from Proba that she had, earlier in her poetic career, not been as devout as she was in her later career. And we'll find that out when we look at her poem. We think that perhaps one of the great crises of Proba's life was a civil war that took place in the 350s between Proba's husband's emperor or, or superior, who was the Emperor Constantius II, and Constantius II's rival for power, who is a guy named Magentius. So Proba's husband, who was probably named Adelphius, he worked for Constantius II. Constantius II fought against Magnetius. And it's possible, maybe even probable, that Proba's husband would have been on the battlefield in the midst of civil war. So as you can imagine, this is quite a crisis, quite a scary moment in Proba's life and also in the life of Rome. Civil wars aren't very good for Rome. Civil wars aren't very good for anyone. But whenever there's a civil war in Rome, 
in the imperial age, certainly it puts everyone in mind of the horrible civil wars that racked the end of the Roman Republic, not just the wars between Caesar and Pompey, but also uh, Mark Antony and Brutus, and then finally Antony and Octavian and Cleopatra that ends in Octavian's taking on the mantle of Augustus and the fall of the Roman Republic. So civil war, not a good thing, and puts Romans in mind of their society being completely transformed, not usually in a good way. So Proba, her imagination must have been very much affected by this. And she says in the poem we're about to read that she actually wrote a whole long narrative poem about this civil war. At least a decade later in the 360s, she undertook another endeavor which is very unlike her Civil War poem. Her Civil War poem has as its predecessor Lucan's poem called Civil War, which is about the war between Julius Caesar and Pompey. Proba, a decade or so after she writes this, writes a poem that doesn't take Lucan, and even further back, the war poems of people like Homer and Virgil, doesn't take them as her immediate precursors, but it takes our buddy Juvencus as precursor because Proba attempts a poem that retells the New Testament gospel story. But as we said in the last episode, Juvencus does it very, very faithfully, almost paraphrases Matthew and Luke into dactylic hexameter without losing much of the details of Matthew and Luke and certainly not really putting in any other details. When people talk about the genius of Juvencus, it's usually his interesting use of phrases that he's using to add dactylic prettiness to his lines, not his reimagining Jesus's motivations or his telling a story from uh, from John's perspective that we don't get from John's perspective in the Gospels. There's no innovation when it comes to plotting or characterization. Now, here's a question, though. Would that even be appropriate for a Christian poet? Obviously, you don't want to have a surprise ending to the Gospel story where Jesus doesn't get crucified. That would, in fact, be theologically inaccurate. And we know in the 300s, the Christian church was very, very sensitive to theological inaccuracies, and it even started having councils like the Council of Nicaea and soon the Council of Constantinople in 381 to eradicate any small misconception about who Jesus was or what he did and uh, what he should mean to the Christian. So the Christian poet is in an interesting place in the 360s when Proba writes her major work. How do you tell stories from the Bible, especially culminating in Christ, while being fresh and innovative and powerful, but also being true to the, to the important and increasingly complex theological understanding that the church has, especially those who are well-educated, among whom is Proba. Well, this is what Proba does. Proba writes a long poem, uh, not as long as Juvencus's poem. Juvencus's poem, Liber Evangeliorum IV, is about 3,000 lines, a pretty, pretty hefty poem. Proba manages to rein herself in. She writes in dactylic hexameter lines, but it's only around 690 lines long, I think 694 to be exact. So this is the first 
23 lines of her poem. And I'll explain in a minute why I'm only reading the first 23. Obviously, we don't have time for 694. But something happens in the 24th line, which is very important. So here's how Proba's poem begins. The title of this poem, there's some variation in how people talk about it. At its most basic, it's usually called the Virgilian Kento. But the full title is something more like the Virgilian Kento de Laudibus Christi, or the Virgilian Kento in honor of Christ. But sometimes people will just call it de Laudibus Christi, and then some people will even just call it Proba's Kento. So you got to be a little um, circumspect in trying to figure out oh, what poem are they talking about. Here's something helpful. We only have one extant poem by Proba. So if someone talks about a poem by Proba, you can bet it's this one. Proba begins. Year upon year have elapsed since the pious alliance was broken by miserable leaders with horrible lustings for rule of the empire, randomly murdering, reigning with crude and unmerciful battle of garrisoned armies of brothers, polluted from hewing their fathers, scuffling to prize some fine buckler from men who are kin and no enemy, splashing out gallons of lifeblood and calling it triumph, creating numberless widows, deprived of the men in their emptying cities. Of these I confess that I wrote. But enough of recalling such evils. Now may the Father Omnipotent sow a new poem in me. May he open his mouth and let loose his eternal and sevenfold spirit to burrow and nestle within my heart's chambers, that I may be rendered prophetess, proba, and able to sing of mysterious matters. Never again will I search for my healing from Nectar's ambrosial, nor do I need to still lead the Aeonian muses down mountains, nor will I err in conversing with lumps of inanimate granite, nor will I tell of the funeral games, of the tripods and meaningless pledges, quarrels of petulant gods, nor the cults of aristocrat households. For none of my labor in words is to further my worldly renown, nor the trifling studies of men who investigate who should be lauded. But steeped in Castalia's spring, imitating the blessed before me, and sated with sanctified waters, libations of light from the heavens, here I begin my new song. For God being present, my mind will now rise and proclaim that Virgilius sang of the gifts of Christ Jesus. So if you had Juvencus in front of you, you might notice some interesting similarities. We start with Michael Bay action sequence. Uh, the pious alliance was broken by miserable leaders with horrible lustings for rule of the emperor, empire, randomly murdering, crude and unmerciful battle, garrisoned armies hewing their fathers, splashing out lifeblood. It's like the beginning of Lord of the Rings where you have all the guys charging and slashing at each other. Like we've said before, poets love a good action sequence. Um, Juvencus destroyed the universe in the first couple lines of, uh, of, his, uh, of his poem. In this, though, we have actually a reference to an earlier poem that she wrote. Remember how I said that she wrote a poem about the Civil War? Well, how do we know she wrote a poem about the Civil War? Well, she talks about it here. She says, I did the whole Iliad thing, the whole Lucan thing, the whole everyone's murdering each other, war is hell, isn't that awful, but also how cool is it that I wrote this? 
her language is interesting. She says, of these, I confess that I wrote. That word confess is important there. Uh, Augustine, within 40 years, would title a work of his confessions where he talks about all his youthful indiscretions. What's Proba's youthful indiscretion or perhaps youthful um, uh, indulgence? Well, it's writing a bloody war poem. Now, we don't often associate early Christian women or early women in history who are poets with writing war poems. In fact, there's whole books filled with investigation of women's voices in ancient literature, especially Sappho. Sappho is the greatest of the early early Greek poets and certainly the preeminent female poet of ancient Greece. What does she write about? She writes about how dreary war is and how great love is, how great friendship and sisterhood is. Um, she has a great poem where she says, some say that flashing armies and garrisons on horses are the greatest thing in life. But I say the most beautiful thing that you can see is the person you love. And we say, oh, how nice. And we, we kind of expect if we're familiar with Sappho, we expect a female poet of the ancient world to denigrate war by not writing about it, by quickly passing over it to the, the relationships, to uh, romance, to mother-daughter relationships is another thing that Sappho writes about. Proba didn't do that in early life. Proba said, no, 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 no. I'm not letting the Civil War epic be a boys club. I'm going to be a Civil War epic writer. And it's one of, I think, the great tragedies of early Christian poetry that we don't have the Civil War epic of Proba. Uh, it would be wonderful to see, but she gives us a taste of it. I've read it now twice. She gives us people hacking each other and stealing bucklers from their brothers, letting the haze and hate of war make them enemies to their own kin, who they should, of course, approach in brotherly love. She shows us, I can write that. I can be your saving private Ryan, you know, explosions and death. I can do that. And then she says, but I'm not going to do that. I'm more mature now. I've got something better for you. And this is where it gets really interesting. She says, enough of recalling such evils. Now may the father omnipotent sow a new poem in me. May he open his mouth and let loose his eternal and sevenfold spirit. And this is where I think if you're thinking of large patterning in openings of long poems, this is where she very much is following Juvencus. Juvencus says, the world is going to be destroyed, but poets, Virgil, Homer, they, they preserve great deeds, even though it's all going to burn and we should respect them. But of course, they're pagans. Now I'm going to do something new. I'm going to sing of Jesus. And then he asks the spirit to help him. Well, that's, that is on a large scale what Proba is doing here. She says, the father omnipotent, may he sow a new poem in me. May he let loose his spirit. Once again, the father and the spirit are acting in a muse-like way. The, the muse is the one who inspires the pagan poet, while the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires the Christian poet. And we have this almost cozy image, uh, his eternal and sevenfold spirit to burrow and nestle within my heart's chambers. I think of a bird sort of uh, nestling into, I don't know, a, a cleft in a rock, but it's her heart. It, it's a beautiful image. It's, it's a little strange. 
she retains though this this feeling that the the spirit is bird-like which of course is, is from the baptism scene uh in mark and in luke so she shows us i can write about battle i can do that i can give you that you want explosions you want death i got it but i'm going to try something new and god i'm calling on god to help me and she says that i may be, be rendered prophetess proba she names herself here in case we in case we didn't remember our name i'm telling you who i am but who am i i'm prophetess proba i am going to speak the words of god because the spirit is going to inspire me we thought juvencus was bold in saying i'm going to write something that is like eternity that resembles eternity she's saying i'm going to speak the words of god of course Every poet, if they call on the muse and then say they're going to speak divinely inspired, we have to say, well, what if it doesn't work? How do I know if the poem I have at the beginning of which you call on a muse, how do I know if it worked? Well, maybe Juvencus would say, does it gain lasting renown? If not, I guess your divine transaction did not take hold. It's a dangerous thing, calling on a goddess or god or muse. If you horribly fail... Is it a little blasphemous to have called on God, to have, to have said, my God is speaking through me, and then to have said, you know, nothing very important or impressive? Then she gives this list of what she's not going to do anymore. And we can kind of move through these quickly. She says, never again will I search for my healing from nectar's ambrosial. Ambrosia and nectar were the food and drink of the gods. Nor do I need to still lead the Aeonian muses down mountains. The Mount of the Muses is a place that a poet or artist could go and call them down. Come down from your, from your Aeonian mount and inspire me. She's not going to do that. She already said, the Father is going to send the Spirit to inspire me. Nor will I err in conversing with lumps of inanimate granite. I'm not going to go talk to statues lumps of inanimate granite it's, it's a great sort of smack in the face to the devotees of the uh of the say marble statues of athena no those are lumps nor will i tell of the funeral games funeral games very important in the in the epics especially the aeneid and the iliad and of the tripods and meaningless pledges these uh these uh these uh, temples and, and offerings that are given to the gods these uh, altars Quarrels of petulant gods. There we go. The petulant gods. I'm not going to get into that, right? Hera tricking Zeus because Zeus did what Hera didn't like. And Hera is also mad at, at, uh, at Aphrodite. No, 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 no. None of that. Nor the cults of aristocrat households. For none of my labor in words is to further my worldly renown. Now, that's interesting. Juvenka said, look, not only do poets gain timeless renown, also we should give it to them. She's being a little more modest. I'm not doing this to gain worldly renown. Okay, Proba, you can think that. I, I always doubt when someone who writes something that's very ambitious, when they say, oh, I don't want any, any renown for it. I think, well, but, but what if you were given renown? Would you like it? Now, someone like Emily Dickinson intentionally didn't publish her poems. And the poems of hers that were published, uh, allegedly she was a little embarrassed by the fact that they appeared in print. Um, so I don't know. If you're an Emily Dickinson, maybe I'll say, okay, you, you practice what you preach. You write poetry and, and, and don't want it published and actively work for it not to be published and are sad when it is. I don't know if I trust Proba here, but okay. None of my labor in words is to further my worldly renown, nor the trifling studies of men who investigate who should be lauded. Ooh, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little sharp barb there. 
here I am sitting in a in an office surrounded by books, doing a poetry podcast, lauding poets, thinking about who should be lauded. Those are trifling studies, she says. I'm not writing for the critics. I'm not writing for good reviews. Okay, okay. It's a little hard to hear as a critic. But you know what? I'm going to praise you anyway. I'm going to praise you anyway. You don't want it, but I'll praise you anyway, Proba. But steeped in Castalia's spring, imitating the blessed before me, and sated with sanctified waters, libations of light from the heavens, here I begin my new song. This is great. She gives us really quickly this actually very curious series of images with, with some interesting connotations. Seeped in Castalia's spring, the Castalian spring is a way to refer to Virgil. So steeped in the poetry and tradition of Virgil, okay, that's a, that's a, a pagan Latin tradition. She's writing in Latin, so obviously she would see some debt to Virgil. Imitating the blessed before me, okay, the blessed, Scholars seem to have a consensus that this blessed doesn't mean the blessed Virgil, the blessed Homer, but the Christian blessed, the perhaps the Judeo-Christian blessed, the, the great and virtuous figures of the Old and New Testament and, and the saints and martyrs, right? If she's writing in the 360s, there's been three and a half centuries after the New Testament of great men and women who have been martyred in the Colosseum or who have, who have evangelized sometimes even whole countries by now. So there are many blessed before her. She's steeped in Virgil. She's imitating the saints and martyrs. She's sated with sanctified waters, libations of light from the heavens. Water and light have, well, effectively baptized her. At the very least, this is saying, I'm a baptized Christian. But there's a sense that she's been purified and illumined, not just physically, but perhaps even mentally, spiritually. After all, she said she's a prophetess before. She is a purified prophetess, purified with the sacraments of the church, illumined with the light of God. Okay, she's described herself as a pretty awesome figure. So what's she going to do? And this is where this poem gets loopy. For God being present, my mind will now rise and proclaim that Virgilius, that is the Latin name of Virgil, sang of the gifts of Christ Jesus. Now, did Virgilius sing of the gifts of Christ Jesus? Who wrote the Gospels? Not Virgil. In fact, would Virgil have known anything about Jesus? Well, though Virgil died shortly before Jesus was born, they didn't overlap in their lifetimes. Virgil dies in 19 BC. Jesus is born around 0 AD. So Virgil couldn't have known, let alone sung, of Christ. Now, there is an interesting section in Virgil's fourth eclogue, where he talks about a virgin giving birth to one who will rule justly and will bring about a golden age. And so some, some have seen Virgil as sort of this pre-Christian pagan prophet, though others say, well, no, that there are actually people that he could have been referring to. Virgin there is unclear whether he's talking about a miraculous virgin birth or a young woman giving birth. Once again, uh, that's a question in Isaiah as well. So Virgil didn't sing of the gifts of Christ Jesus. Why is she saying that he did? Well, if you continue reading this poem after this line, this poem will stop being an original composition by Proba. In fact, for the next 650 plus lines of this poem, 
only Virgil's lines and phrases will be used. But if you were to read it right now, it would read as a retelling of the Genesis account of creation and fall of man and of the account of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. How does Proba do this? Well, Kento, the name of this poem, is in fact a genre popular in early Christian writing and early pagan writing too, a late antique pagan writing, where someone basically used verbal collage, or sometimes we call this found poetry, by using the work of someone else, but taking their words and phrases and rearranging them to be about something totally new. But they don't use any of their own words. It's all lines and half lines from someone else. So the Virgilian Kento is called the Virgilian Kento because it's a patchwork, a mosaic, a collage of lines and half lines from the poems of Virgil, which really do retell the first couple chapters of Genesis and the story of the Gospels. It's a fascinating poem. I recommend going and finding it. There are a couple translations out there. Uh, I am Plant's translation in Ancient Women Poets is a, is a great, great collection to check it out in. It's easy to read. It's, it's translated in free verse. I've translated it here. I read it to you in, in dactylic hexameter. Plants is in free verse, but it's, it's worth checking out for, for seeing how the narrative works. Because if you didn't know that it was Virgil, it would just read like an interesting, sometimes a little vague retelling of the gospel story and the creation story. And it's one of the ways that, that Proba is able to put her own spin on this telling the gospel story in poetry in giving us the creation of the universe and the creation and fall of man, she's able to have Adam and Christ be highlighted in her work. And Adam and Christ, Adam as the fallen man, Christ as the one who restores the fallen. In doing this, she's able to give us a little bit of a new spin, a little bit of a, a highlighting that Juvencus isn't able to give us. Also, in using Virgil's descriptions of his own heroes, especially Aeneas, but also Hector, Proba is able to show how Christ isn't just kind of like them, but kind of is the real world, uh, C.S. Lewis says, the true myth that fulfills this human desire and admiration for the, the mythic characters, the legendary characters of Hector and Aeneas. There's a lot more to say about Proba's Kento, but I hope that your interest is piqued. And, and also, Proba Studies is, is still taking off. We've had a lot of interest in Proba in the last couple decades, and it's still going strong. And I think one of the most fascinating things is she is a major poet of the early Christian era and a major poet just of Western Latin poetry in general of her era and one of the only female poets of this era. In fact, the fact that she was a female was so impressive to later generations that we sometimes have a romanticization in later centuries of Proba's age and people who argued, say, in the Middle Ages for uh, more political rights for women would often say, ah, in the mid-300s when Proba wrote, women were free to be scholars and poets. We should, we should have a... a political situation more like Proba's. Now, it's not actually true that all women were, were incredibly emancipated in Proba's day, but she becomes a model for 
the great Christian thinker and writer and even evangelist prophetess who is also female. It's very important for the history of poetry, very important for our conception of what early Christians thought and what early Christians practiced, not just in relation to poetry, but also in relation to our expectations for men and women and their accomplishment. So there's a lot more to say about Proba. She's one of my favorite poets of this early era, and she follows Juvencus and is able to give a whole new twist on how to approach telling the gospel story in epic meter, in an epic way, and making Christ an epic hero. And together, Juvencus and Proba become the two great models in the early Christian era of how to attempt epics about Christ. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Uh, questions, comments, any feedback, email us at poetrycorner at saintconstantine.org.